Okay, here we go. Guys, nice quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Mickey Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alec Russell. I'm the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over 10 years. I've made dozens of films, shorts and features in a variety of positions, including producer or director. And my first feature film as a writer and director, The Alternate, is premiering at the Dances with Films Film Festival on Saturday, September 11th. So buy your tickets now. They are available. I will make sure the link is in the show notes. Uh, Please support the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and I have written, directed, and produced two features. I'm also a former film critic, a current distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative at Sundance. I said Sundance twice, just trying to impress everyone with my little humble brag. Um, and if I'm going to do a shout out, it's to watch Speed of Life, my second feature on Showtime. Uh, on this week's episode of the show, we have on the directors of the indie hit Starry Eyes, Kevin Kelsch and Dennis Widmere, to talk about getting their first film made for $300,000 and how they managed to parlay that success and some other successes into directing their second feature film, Pet Cemetery, at a budget of $21 million. Holy shit. They went from 300000 to $21 million. It's like my head just exploded all over the floor. Um, they talk about how they spent 20 years making films in the DIY style and how that led them to get to their, the careers they have now and how they are looking to, a, to do a film that will capture the feeling of their first film, Starry Eyes, that got them, you know, got them their success. We, all, we also have a yet another short film for the Get Shorty segment called Gwen from listener Luke Zanziger. Zwanziger? Luke Zwanziger, maybe. Uh, and we double up with Luke and answer a question he sent in as well, um, along with his Get Shorty. But without any more chin wagging, here's our conversation with Kevin and Dennis. Well, let's right, Liz, jump want... right in. Yeah. Uh, yes. The first question we have on Starry Eyes is, would one of you give me the, or give us the elevator pitch? Uh, it's not really an elevator pitch movie, but I would basically just say it's about a, it's about a woman kind of, uh, you know, very ambitious looking to get a role in a, in a, in a big movie and kind of the lengths that she'll go to, to do that. Yeah. Basically it is, you know? Yeah. I would say, yeah, the story of the horrific lens and actress would go to achieve her dreams. And then how many days did you shoot? That's 18. Yeah. yeah, 18 days on that one. Nice. Uh, can you speak to the rough budget and what was it? It was roughly around 300,000, I believe, uh, all said and done. Yep. Um, and then how did you guys come up with uh, the idea for the film? Uh, I can answer that. It was basically a combination of two separate ideas we had that worked better when merged. Uh, I had had the idea of a woman kind of coming home from a party that gets uh, attacked by a creature. Uh, and then Kevin had been working on an idea and he'd even done a short film that he directed that I helped produce about a girl that uh, is uh, destined for Hollywood and is sort of like leaving all her friends behind and is ambitious and wants to kind of go out there and follow her dreams. And we liked the idea of combining the two of them. And instead of it having being sort of like a creature that attacks her, uh, ambition attacks her. And we liked the idea mm. of ambition as a monster, you know, being possessed yeah. of ambition, you know. And also, you know, this was uh, at the point where me and Dennis were 
making our next film, which at first we thought we might make it as a short, just because when you're doing something DIY, you're like, can I afford a feature? But then sort of with, you know, things like Kickstarter and crowdfunding kind of being on the rise, we were like, yeah, we'll do it as a feature. But this was kind of like us deciding to make our next DIY thing and having to crowdfund it at first. So like, it just kind of felt like me and Dennis had been doing this for years. We've been working in this industry for years, trying to make films. And it just kind of felt like this impenetrable uh, cult kind of, and you're like, how do you get in? Like, you know, like how do you become an insider in this industry? So we kind of like took all of our feelings that we were feeling as, you know, filmmakers that have been doing DIY stuff for close to 20 years and never having a, ever been paid money by anybody else or, or even having anybody else's money as a budget for any of our films, you know, like it was kind of like taking all of our uh, sort of frustrations at that and applying it to this story. So it was kind of like Dennis was saying, merging his idea for this creature movie, this, I, the short film that I was doing about an aspiring actor, and then just kind of adding in our, our sort of frustrations with uh, <laughs> trying to kickstart our own careers, you know? I'm not being funny here, Kev, but are we, we're still in the rapid fire uh, answer. Yes, okay. yes, we yeah. are. Well, <laughs> this, ha- this happens a lot. No, don't worry, don't worry. No, no. Well, I, I was going to ask that before because I felt like the first answer is they were like, "What's this?" And when it was like three hundred thousand, eighteen days. <laughs> 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 that was like a ridiculous. Um, but what you said, Kevin, is like basically the thesis of our podcast is feeling, trying to figure out how to break in and feeling, um, feeling on the outside. So I think we're going to get into it in a second. How long did you two spend working on the film from coming up with the idea, uh, to its release? God, what do you think, Kev? Thought um, years, maybe two years. Yeah. Well, I know we shot in starting in April of like 2013. And I know we did, uh, our Kickstarter video. I was out recording it with Dennis in like December of the year before. Right. So like not the script was already written at that point. So, I mean, if you want, I could look on the computer right now and tell you when our drafts were. And when, <laughs> you know. it, and when did it come out? It, like 2014, 2015 or. Yeah. I played uh South by Southwest in 2014 and uh, which would have been March. And then I think it got a theatrical release like later that year, maybe I want to say November of 2014. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then compared to all the other projects you guys have made, how difficult was this one? Uh, mm. Every every project is difficult in its own way. Uh, but I would say for the most part, though, we had a really great team on this one, you know, and uh, because we were, we had written it and we were producers on it and directors on it, you know, and it, it was really our vision and it wasn't like a work thing that we were being brought on board for. That at the end of the day always makes anything you work on just better, you know, and, and you can kind of forgive all the... Uh, the flaws or things that go wrong because you're making your own film, you know? And we didn't really have a lot of overs- oversight from uh, the company that helped, you know, pay for the film. They, they really trusted our vision and trusted Travis Stevens, who was the lead producer on it. And so as a result, I would, it was really a good time. It's kind of, it, funny enough, it's, it's, a, um, it's a feeling we've been trying to get back to ever since with everything that we've made since. It's trying to get back to that feeling of how we felt making Star Us. Well, that's yeah. fascinating. And I think we need yeah. to, um, because you said just a few minutes ago that you fueled Starry Eyes with all your feelings of maybe discontent with the industry. And then it became this broke out hit and you got to do Pet Cemetery, and you were doing directing episodes to Scream. So I guess um, 
is it a be careful what you wish for kind of situation or what, what happened? Yeah, I think uh, the funny thing is, it's like, uh, um, it, it's funny, you know, like when you, I think when you put yourself into your films or you tell something that you care about or something of you is going into it, you know, that resonates with people. I think people could feel when, you know, a film is more honest or is coming from a real place within somebody uh, and, uh, and th people respond to that. And I think that is what helped make it kind of, uh, kind of survive, you know, uh, after South by Southwest, you know, that like it kind of like lingered around with some people and then like, you know, and that's what like Hollywood's looking for really. Like, it's not like they care or they go, Oh my God, you, satirized us we're not working we're not working with you it's it's kind of like they see oh you made a film and uh and people saw it talked about it liked it and it kind of lingered a little around a little bit and that's what they want they want people that are going to sort of make films that could kind of uh get people talking you know when you say lingered a bit what, what do you mean by that did it just like play a ton of festivals after uh, south by southwest or did it get a bunch of reviews like how did it have longevity after the premiere uh, I would say just people are still talking about it. I mean, like Pet Cemetery did well for us. It helped us. It, it, it made good money for the studio, you know, but, it, but it, it wasn't ours. You know, it was a work for hire. We tried to put as much as ourselves into that as we could. But I think what Kevin's saying is people saw something, uh, a, a more of a vision in Starry Eyes, something more personal. And as a result, that film has lasted and it keeps finding new mm -hmm. fans and we keep seeing mm -hmm. pop up on lists and when people come mm -hmm. up to us and they and they, they they want to talk to us about our films, they usually want to talk about Star Eyes, you know, and that's great because that was this little film that could, you know, and so that's that's a big lesson, you know, is that like even if you're doing bigger films and stuff, always try to put as much as yourself in as you can, and sometimes you're, you you do as well as you can, but you're working for a giant studio, you know, and they they have their own agenda, and you kind of have to kind of like ride that balance beam a little bit, you know, but uh, what I mean by trying to get back to that feeling that we had on Star Eyes, it's really just us being able to control our own material more. And uh, even if it means focusing and doing smaller films, uh, it's really just about getting our vision across, you know? Uh, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing to us. You know, Guillermo del Toro once had a great uh, quote that I read that he said, I think he said it on Twitter, where he said, if you're gonna fail, fail on your own terms. And so we'd much rather go do some weird movie that we write that we do and just doesn't work, but at least it's our thing, you know? And we could sleep at night knowing, all right, wasn't for everybody, but it was, it was what exactly we wanted to do. What you don't want to have a situation is you try to do something that uh, doesn't totally work for everybody. And it's not even all you, you know, <laughs> right. like between this whole thing, you know? So, you know, and that happens a lot, you know? It, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody, uh, you know, saying something negative about your film and attributing it to you because you're the directors and you're sitting there going, I knew that wasn't going to work. I actually voiced that many times in the room, but like, you know, you were overridden by somebody else, you know? <laughs> um, Got to get used to it. So I'm really curious to hear about like the trajectory from Starry Eyes to Pet Cemetery. So, so is it like premieres at South by Southwest? Do you guys immediately get representation? Do you immediately go on a, a pitch tour? Do you immediately land Pet Cemetery, or is this like a years long process to get to your uh, your second feature? Uh, it was. It, I mean, Kevin, tell this story better than I do. It was a pretty long process. He could he could walk it through it a little. Yeah, bit. yeah. And while we're talking about timelines, real quick, I did look back in the folder and yeah. Starry Eyes script looks like we started writing it in like summer of two thousand twelve. Shot it in summer of like two thousand thirteen, and then it was 
you know, at South by in 2014. So wow. Wow. that's very, pretty fast. Uh, yeah. Um, that's not how we do most of our other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> if only. You know, we've, we've got another script that, yeah, we've spent like, you know, like seven years reworking drafts of and stuff, you know? So, I mean, um, but yeah, the way that it worked with uh, Starry Eyes to Pet Cemetery was that we did Starry Eyes and it came out and it was getting good reviews out of South by Southwest, but it still was this very small movie and it got us attention and it got us reps. Like you were, like you were asking, uh, we, we got our manager right out of South by, he saw the movie there. Then uh, he took us on a, did a, the bottle water tour, as you say, he took us around town meeting people. He introduced us to agency at all the agencies and we got uh, an agent and a lawyer and all that. And we, you know, kind of built our whole team. Uh, and then, uh, but then it was still kind of like our manager was going, you're still going to need to make your next step up, right? You know, like that was a very small movie. You still might have to make your $800,000 movie or your $1.5 million movie or something, you know, like, but, um, and me and Dennis actually attached to a few projects and, uh, you know, we went in and we pitched on things and I guess we were good in the room, but some of the first projects we got were actually bigger than that budget that our manager was saying, oh, you're probably gonna have to make a movie like this next. And so, suddenly we were attached to something that was maybe a couple million dollars. And like we did a script rewrite on it. And for one reason or another, each of these jobs that we attached to and that we did script rewrites on, the movie didn't happen. Movies don't happen all the time. It takes a, it takes a lot to actually get a movie greenlit. So no fault of ours, different circumstances every time stopped the movie from happening. But the studios were always happy with the rewrites that we did on the script. So the next time we went in on a meeting for something, we would pitch on it. People would like our take. They'd probably make a call and talk to their buddies at the other studio. And, you know, and we got a favorable, uh, you know, referral. So then like uh, we would get hired on a movie that was a slightly bigger budget than the one before that. And suddenly like the budget level of each movie was rising, even though the movies weren't happening. We weren't proving that we could make a $5 million <laughs> movie or an $8 million movie. And then a $15 million movie. We were only just, writing scripts that they were happy with, but we didn't ever actually prove that we could do that. And then, uh, but we were kind of getting like, you know, a, a reputation then that we were, you know, getting these projects and people were happy with what we were doing with the scripts. And then kind of like, uh, and at the same time, when we talk about that longevity, like now it was a couple of years had gone by because, you know, Pet Cemetery we shot in uh, 2018, you know? So it's been a couple of years since Starry Eyes. And then like me and Dennis were talking about like, it kind of lingered and like people online were still talking about it and it seemed to have like a sort of a little cult following. And then it was kind of like, and then instead of it's just kind of us not striking while the iron's hot, I think actually people liked us now for projects more because it looked like we could make a movie that kind of like stuck around a little bit or stood uh, mm -hmm. the test of time. It didn't just, you know, cause you know, everybody loves movies when they see them at festivals, everybody like, you know, it, you're there, you're having a great time. You're with the, uh, the filmmakers and everything and you, you know and everybody loves to just be supporters it's a very supportive uh you know environment the film festivals but like then you know when the movie kind of stuck around a little it kind of people were like oh okay you know like they wanted us more for these jobs and what happened was three things sort of happened was uh back when we first got our manager he asked if he told us about projects around on the town and one of them was pet cemetery we were like oh we're big fans of stephen king 
We were fans of the original movie. We'd love to do a take on that. But that was when he first said that thing where he's like, you'll never get that movie. It's too big. Um, <laughs> you know, but then we spent, uh, but they had it. And then they had got a different director attached and it was stuck in development hell. Like most movies are for years. And like I said, in those years, me and Dennis built up our resume and like got these bigger jobs, bigger jobs, bigger jobs. And then three things happened was the movie that we were supposed to go shoot. That was at a pretty high budget level fell through uh, the director that they had on Pet Cemetery uh, left to go do something else. And then it came out and, uh, you know, and it was huge. And everybody that had any sort of Stephen King property wanted to just kind of fast track any of them into into development. So suddenly Paramount got, uh, you know, suddenly uh, Pet Cemetery is a big priority for them, but they don't have a director. Our film fell through. And we got in the room and on this project that like three years earlier, our manager was like, you'll never get that project. You know, now we were in a position that we actually got in the room. And uh, it was one of the hardest things we ever had to do because the pitch process was intense. We went on like six different meetings, pitching, pitching. Oh, come back and pitch my boss. Come back and pitch my boss. Come back and pitch my boss. You know, going up the ladder, pitching like six different times. And it was one of the hardest things we had to do getting this project. But eventually, you know, we got the job and trust me when we did, we were actually surprised, you know, it wasn't like getting called back numerous times. You're like, wow, we're going to get this. They must really like us. No, it felt like, you know, each one was like, I don't know, going up to the next end boss of a video game or something. And you're like, well, am, I gonna, well, yeah. am I going to defeat this boss? You know, uh, so <laughs> that's what um, Brett and Drew Pierce, we just interviewed them. Uh, directors of the wretched just said the exact same thing that you're, you're trying to level up and fighting the big, the big bad of that level. Yeah. Um, I told them guys that. <laughs> think you probably no, I'm, just, oh, uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs> I'm thinking about um yeah so Ulrich and I are both directors and we're both kind of in the genre space by the way so with it's always super super exciting to talk to directors like you um <laughs> but what I want to think back on is like I'm now only only now after my second feature becoming acquainted to this game that you guys are talking about, the pitch game, the meetings, the water bottles. I had not been aware of it before. I didn't even know the term a water bottle tour until um, someone mentioned it in an interview. Um, and then you said you had some affinity and some nostalgia for how Starry Eyes came together. So I guess I'm just trying to figure out how can we clarify for listeners the process differences between studio and indie. In in Starry Eyes, were you also doing pitches to financiers, but it was just a little bit more control was allowed to you because the budget was smaller? Can you speak to just the process of getting that project off the ground by comparison? Uh, it's night and day. I mean, Starry Eyes, we, uh, like, like Kevin said, we had a feature film before that back in 2005, 2006. And so we'd already done a feature and it was not a great experience. Uh, our, you know, it was a long post-production process. Money kind of fell through. And we sort of walked away from that process uh, feeling like, let's just focus on short films for a while. So when Starry Eyes came along, but are you hearing my wife in the background? I can, we could just hear you, I think. Okay, okay. So, uh, so when Starry Eyes came around, we weren't looking to dive back into trying to make a feature film again, because it was, it was not fun. Uh, but a couple things happened. One, everyone that we showed the script to back when it was like a 30 page script that would have been a very ambitious short film said, this really feels like a, like a feature film. And we knew it did, you know, and I think we were just kind of being gun shy because we weren't ready to kind of wade back into that pool. Uh, but then it was the advent of Kickstarter. 
And one of my other day jobs is I manage Chuck Palahniuk, the author of Fight Club's online web presence. So it's his, you know, his Twitter, his Facebook. Kevin and I have met him a bunch of times. He's kind of my wedding. He's been, he's guy's amazing. He's been on our lives for like 20 years. And uh, he was okay with us promoting the Kickstarter to his fan base. He even said, I'll go ahead and I'll huh. incentivize my fans to donate to your film by signing copies of my books. And I'll, I'll name six characters in my next book after real people's names. And, okay. and suddenly people that could really didn't care so much about our movie, but just really cared about getting free Chuck Palahniuk stuff were donating to our film. <laughs> but I think once they actually got to our Kickstarter page, they were impressed because we really, like I said, we had the vision really laid out for the film. We had a, a, a pretty a pretty decent like five minute video that where we even hired an actress and shot like concept footage for the film. And so I think people were really able to see what we were going for. And then they really started to get into it. But our goal the whole time was to try to raise around 50 grand and then try to go make a feature film for 50 grand. And, and Kevin and I would have shot it ourselves on Canon 70s. We would have been producers on it. We would have been editors on it. We would have done everything ourselves. And we were fine with that. That's how we normally had done it up until that point. Uh, but along comes Travis Stevens, a, a friend of ours who was also a producer. He had produced uh, Evan Katz's film, Cheap Thrills, and he had a number of films that had played festivals over the years. And we were just friends with him. We weren't looking to really get anything out of the guy. And I think it got to the point where he was waiting for us to ask him, you know, <laughs> hey, can I see the script that you guys were trying to raise money for? And some of the time finally came that he read the script and then saw the video we put together. He was very impressed and he wanted to be involved with it. And then what happened was he came along with some money from Dark Sky Films, who had uh -huh. done a few of his films and including films such as like Ty West's film, House, House of the Devil. And they had, a, you know, they had a cool wow. little, we were fans of those guys. And so between the, the, the $50,000 that we raised for Kickstarter, another 50 grand that we got just through uh, friends and family and, and, and personal investors, and then the rest of the money that Dark Sky brought on board, uh, the film fell into place. So we it wasn't like we were going around town pitching it. We were intent on just making it. We were raising the money already. And it was sort of like the train had left the station and people were just getting on the train, which is a piece of advice that I would have for your listeners that if you ever are doing something independently, don't come at it like you're making a studio film. The beauty of how you're doing it is the independent, independent approach. It's basically just go, go, go. And if people want to get out of your way, great. If they want to, if they want to jump on the train with you, great. But you're not waiting for anybody and you're just pushing ahead. I mean, like you'll hear stories about filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino, the way he was originally going to make Reservoir Dogs. He was just going to go make it himself, very low budget. And then all of a sudden live entertainment came on board because Harvey Keitel knew them, you know, and then suddenly he had a bigger film. The, different, the, the difference there is that he would have made that original film. He would have made the smaller version of Reservoir Dogs and we would have made the smaller version of Starry Eyes. We weren't looking right. to get more money for it, you know. But then when you get into the studio game, whole different ballpark. You know, you're now competing with tons and tons of other directors. And there is a whole series of people that you have to pitch to. And you have to be, they're looking for any excuse not to make the film or not to hire you. And so this is where things like the pitch books, director's books, look books, Ripplematics, all these things suddenly come into play. And I don't know if it used to be like that, but I think that because it's such a crowded industry right now uh, and there's so much money on the line, uh, people just need to really kind of see the entire film before they really pull the trigger on it. And then even after Paramount was intent on making the film, they internally have something called a green light committee where all the executives that we're working with then have to go and pitch to their bosses at Paramount. And they actually have like giant easels and poster boards and what this is what the marketing is going to look like. And, and this is what the, the budget's going to be. And a whole series of people that are above even their pay grades and, and like a whole board 
have to either go like this or go like that, thumbs up or thumbs down if the film's going to happen or not. And to us, we were like, this is a no-brainer. This is a great book. Of course you would be making that scene. <laughs> but there's a chance that if they didn't like what they saw and we had all developed together, then that film would not, have, would not have happened. And so that's really the big difference. It's just you doing it on your own and hoping that people get what you're doing and come on board, but you're doing it no matter what versus you want to do it. Everybody wants to do it, but they're all looking for reasons not to do it. So. Um. For Pet Cemetery, did what are some of the ways you had to prove yourselves, or was the writing gigs you had leveled up on was that enough, or did they say like, oh, these guys still need to like do like this kind of test or this kind of thing to like you know make us feel comfortable with hiring them on this? Um, they, there was no test, but like again, it was a lot of series of uh, you know going in and meeting many different people, and me and Dennis, you know, we make directors' books when we go in so we have like images showing how we would sort of shoot it but i mean like uh if you mean like how you're saying ripomatics or like some people shooting test footage or something nobody like nobody sent us away and said they wanted us to do that and made us go do anything else you know like but uh but it was just yes like having to like go and convince a lot of people you know i think i'd say was the the true test was the script and our ideas for the script you know, we didn't, we weren't writers on the script, but we, we helped fashion it with the actual writer. And I think that because they had already a script that they had developed for years and they were all just sort of used to that script, uh, they kind of got scale on it. And they were, they were looking for people to kind of come along and tell them what they had and then tell them how it could be better. And that was really our big in was we really broke the story for them and brought the script that they had cl uh, closer to the novel and brought characters mm -hmm. into their script that they were no longer there. They didn't have Zelda, they didn't have Pascal, you know, they were kind of missing some key opportunities for iconography, you know? They were all mm -hmm. talking about it and how it has kids on BMX bikes and it's the eighties and it's Pennywise. <laughs> what do we have in Pet Cemetery? We have to convince them. It's like, you you have a lot, you have like a, a cat, you have Zelda, you have Pascal, you have all these, you have the truck, the road, the cemetery, the deadfall. This, you know, the story is loaded with iconography, you know, and you have to start embracing that and not kind of being afraid of it. That's the movie that people are really gonna want, you know? And they didn't, I don't think they really understood that. And even the writer was thrilled when we came on board because he had been dying to do that stuff. And so when we all sat down together, it was really just about moving the script back to a place where it would work for, people who had never read Pet Cemetery and never even seen the original movie, but it would also work for people who uh, had seen the original movie and had read the book and wanted some familiarity, but also something kind of new as well. And so mm -hmm. that was really the sweet spot that we were always trying to land on. I'm guessing that you can't get into specifics, but if you can, please do. Um, what kind of power and control do you have in a studio film with the contract that you signed? Like, uh, did you have final cut? Did you have any power over like over studio executives when they gave you any sort of critical <laughs> criticism. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, like it's really just a handful of directors that get final cut at a studio level, you know, like, so like us coming in from, you know, we were lucky to even get a studio film of that size coming <laughs> off of the little film that we did. So, you know, no, they, you don't have final cut. I mean, we're in on all the decisions though. I mean, and, but like, you know, there are certain things that, you know, towards the end where you start doing test screenings and the same way that Dennis said, when a movie gets greenlit, it goes up against this sort of green light committee. And what's in the green light committee is 
who's front and center there is their marketing department. And the, the marketing department has to see if there's enough in the movie to sell it. Like, is there enough for the trailer? Is there enough? Is there something that could go on the poster? Because like, you know, when you make movies at the studio level, you're spending a lot of money. And the only way to take that gamble is if like, uh, you know, you're going to get a return. Like there's actually like a lot of things that a lot of the execs liked with our ideas and said, that's great. We could do that if we were doing the uh, $8 million uh, A24 version. But like, you know, but we have to, you know, if you're making a studio movie and we're spending the money that we do, we have to, you know, do it the way that we feel we're going to get our, you know, money back, you know? And so, uh, so they take those uh, test screenings and things of the sort very seriously. So, you know, in the end, there was, a, uh, you know, in the end, right towards before release, there were some things we were overridden on because they went with the decisions that, they thought the audience was uh, voting on, you know, and like mm. to them, that's somebody voting with their dollar. These are the people that are going to buy tickets. But, um, but before that, I mean, before that final thing, like me and Dennis were in on every, uh, you know, we're in on every meeting we're in on like every decision, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, like I said, somebody more, uh, somebody more, somebody above you might have the final say on that decision. You know, we didn't always, we didn't always get every single thing we want, but it wasn't so, but when you say control, it wasn't like we were left out of all the decision-making processes. We were there every step of the way in the room, but just sometimes, you know, if you're at odds, you know, the studio wins, you know? <laughs> at the end of the day, it's their money. Yeah, they're they're going to win. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot, a lot of the things we talk about in the show is like sustainability as filmmakers. So like, you know, how can, can you actually, make a sustainable career as an indie filmmaker or any kind of filmmaker really. Um, so the question is like, after Starry Eyes did so well at South by Southwest and you've got, you know, your new representation and you're getting hired to do these rewrites, is, is that it? Are you like getting paid and, you know, providing for yourself off your writing and your filmmaking solely? Or were you, was there a period where you still had to do your day jobs before you were like, you know, doing filmmaking only as your, your only thing that you're providing for yourself on? Uh, I would say anybody getting into this industry, and like, yeah, unless you're like Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg, uh, try not to quit your day job. You know, try to have some <laughs> form of thrill. I mean, try to have some form of passion <laughs> or have enough money kind of, you know, tucked under a mattress somewhere. Because with us, I mean, the, the, we, we haven't made a ton of money. I mean, the money that we've made has really just sustained us to have our health insurance. And it's really just been writing money. You know, like, uh, ironically, we've actually earned more money probably from writing gigs than we have from directing, you know, with, uh, with TV, especially they, they don't pay you as two directors. You have to split your fee, you know, whereas with movies, you, the DGA honors it to where you do each get your own fee. But, uh, you know, it, the, the money helps you out a little bit, but really it, you, you have to stay with it and you have to keep working is a reason why directors try to work as much as they can and they get commercials and music videos and stuff. And so with us, because Kevin, and I also know how to write, like we just signed a new writing gig, you know, we're always trying to keep that going on the side because that's a more reliable revenue stream. You know, I mean, it takes a long time to make a movie, you know, and yeah. even then, you don't really get start getting paid on the movie until the first week of production. You know, there'll sometimes be a development fee, you know, but you're really not getting paid that much early on in that development process. And so it helps to have some money put away or if you have something you are able to do on the side that doesn't get in the way of you 
working on you know your dreams and writing and trying to direct films keep that going you know that this is not like you know i've made it i'm in hollywood mom it's it's really, <laughs> it's really not what it is you know especially nowadays yeah. yeah um and i would say if it's sustainable when you're what you're asking it uh that's what we're trying to find out you know like uh like Dennis was saying, when we're trying to get back that starry eye spirit, like when we made starry eyes, we didn't get any money. Like, you know, like we started as a Kickstarter. It was our own passion project. All the money went on the screen, you know, like, so we didn't get paid for that. So like we didn't make any money on a film that small, that indie of a film or that much of a passion project. We didn't get paid at all. Pet Cemetery, we got paid, but at the same time, like we said, like it's, not 100% your film, you, you don't have as much passion. And when Dennis says he we choose to write, it's like writing is sort of easier. Not only did we get more money for writing, but it's easier to just kind of sit in your apartments and uh, sort of write than it is to kind of like go away on location, be away from your sort of family for four months or whatever it be longer on bigger movies for Pet Cemetery, it was four months. But uh but to be away all that time and like if and if you're just hired on a job it's hard you, you know it, it takes a lot of passion to make a film you have to care because you're you're really long hours 12 hours minimum every day everybody's coming up to you wanting your say in every single decision like what t-shirt should he wear this one or that one or whatever and if you don't like <laughs> care you're like oh it, it's it's like you know the work's going to suffer. The film's going to suffer if you don't care. So like, I mean, so we try, we want to stick to doing our thing, our own projects and things that we're passionate about. So we're trying to find that, like we're trying to find that balance. Like maybe it's the guys like, you know, like I, I was saying at the A24 level, uh, you know, that are doing kind of like, you know, these movies that fall in between like the super low budget indies and like, uh, and a big studio movie, you know, these middle level kind of, movies you know like maybe there we could make something that we is our passion project but yet we could still pay our rent but that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years is like yeah taking some gigs for hire writing some of our own passion projects that we haven't made any money off of yet and we're trying to our goal and our dream would be to find some middle ground where we could be doing those passion projects but at some level that we could like keep our lights on you know and we'll let you know if we find it. <laughs> Please let us know. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, Scream? And actually, you know, we, we usually talk to filmmaking teams about how they divide up the labor, but I'm keenly interested in TV, which is not a director's medium, how you can have um, a filmmaking team at the, at the helm of the ship, so to speak. Um, so how did that work out? Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the things in between that we refer to that basically is just uh, work, you know, uh, I mean, all of it's passion. We're getting to be filmmakers and do what we love. <laughs> but I think, I think what Kevin really means and what I'm saying is that uh, there are levels of that, you know, there, no matter what we, we, we are constantly thinking of movies and watching movies and writing movies. And we would do that even if we were on a desert Island and, and no one was watching and there was no money in it, we would still do it. And so, yeah. You know, oh yeah. Don't get me wrong. When I get, when we get hired for a job as directing, I mean, I'm so happy that I'm doing that instead of going into a office yeah. and like working on a spreadsheet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, we both came from that world. So, you know, trust me, we're, we're living the dream. But uh, with TV, though, it's fun because you're kind of getting a creative vacation in that you're coming on board somebody else's 
thing and it's it's a machine a well-oiled machine and it's we came on to scream season two which was great they had the same crew same cast and uh, they knew exactly what they were doing and then you, you're basically just slotted into that and you get to kind of come in there and have some fun and try some certain things and and you bond with the actors but at the end of the day though the show itself has a vision and you're complementing that vision the cool thing is is that unlike a smaller film like Staria that we just come from they have an entire truck of just toys. It's basically like, hey, you want to you want to shoot this whole thing in a steady cam? We got a guy set up in a steady cam ready to go. Whereas on like something like Starry Eyes, it's like, oh no, we have to schedule which days the steady cam operator. <laughs> he, oh, he's not available those two days. So can we do that handheld instead? Yeah. And like here, you're just like, there's a crane. They're like, yeah, we'll set it up while you guys while while lunch is happening. And a crane will be ready to go when you're done with lunch. And you're like, and it's amazing. And you get to kind of hone your skill and get better at things. And the cast is lovely, you know. And we had a really good time on screen. We came back and did two more episodes for season three and it was, it's fun, you know, but at the end of the day though, it's, it's not yours. And so you're coming in there and you're trying to, you know, compliment their vision, but then you get to, you don't take it home with you. You know, you don't, you don't, you're not laying in bed trying to fall asleep going like, Oh man, that, that thing that I dreamt of mm. ten years ago, I didn't nail it. You know, you're just doing the best you can. And, and, and it's, it's a job. And so we, you know, we, we love it for that aspect. It's, if we could do that in between movies all the time, we would, because it's kind of a way to kind of, you know, because I mean, the thing about film is, I don't know if everyone's like this, but Kevin and I are definitely like this, especially when we're working on our own stuff is, yeah, I mean, you, you, you eat, sleep and breathe it, you know, you really do. It's, it's, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy some, some days, you know, it's like, you're just <laughs> constantly worried and trying to protect this baby that you have, you know? And then when it's somebody else's thing, it's like, it's, it's, it's their baby and you're trying to do your best to nurture that. And so that's fun because it's different, you know, and it's, it's not as exhausting mentally. You know, and so that's what I'll say about TV. As far as two directors, I mean, we really handle that the way we handle our own stuff too. And that uh, I, I think sometimes people think that two directors is sort of almost like a hustle where it's like, oh, Kevin will work Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I'll work Tuesday. <laughs> we'll rotate. It's really Kevin and I both got into this business wanting to do everything. It wasn't like Kevin wanted to focus more on the camera and I wanted to focus more on the actors. And so yin and yang is perfect. We equally want to work on the same stuff. And so whenever we come onto a set, it's completely 50, 50, you know, like, like we've, we've talked about everything exhaustively, you know, about every aspect of everything that we're doing. And we have to be completely on the same page because, you know, we want to read all those pages ourselves. And so when we're on a set, even something like scream, we're standing right next to each other. We're right next to the cameraman. We're talking to the actors. It's both of us. You know, I mean, the only time is that it's one of us is if somebody else is in the bathroom, <laughs> you know? Mm. And that's one of the beauties of two directors is that you could do that. <laughs> you gotta go here, guys. Like, where's Dennis? It's like, Kevin's here, just go ahead, you know? And it's like, yeah, you got this. I'll be back in a minute, you know? And so it, it helps there, but it's like, it's like, no, it's filmmaking is tough. And uh, it's very therapeutic to have a partner that you could bounce things off and feedback off. And when you're, when you're going home after the end of a long day, you could kind of discuss the day with, you know, when you internalize that stuff too much, you could drive yourself crazy sometimes. Mm. And because filmmaking is so collaborative, certain people aren't good at collaborating. Like Kevin and I are really good at it because we have to collaborate with each other. And so by the time we get on set, I've already had to convince Kevin of all the things I want to do and, and vice versa. And so when it comes time to convince an actor to do something, we know how to do that because we've had to do it with each other already. So for yeah. us, it's very helpful. Dennis, when you said filmmaking is tough, you missed your opportunity to drop the name of the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, so I want get, to get a little bit more into process of, at the television level. Um, 
So when you get signed on, do they just hand you a script and they're like, this is it, you're shooting it, go ahead. Or do you get a chance to weigh in at all on any of the script at the script level? And then a uh, follow-up question, when you get into post, are you involved at all in the edit or is it more like you just show up for your shoot days and then you're done, hand off to the executives and you go off, do the next job? Um, you just get a script and you are on meetings. You go in and you're on meetings and, uh, and you hear, uh, you talk with the showrunners and like, you know, you could say things and, you know, you, you could say things back and they'll take it into consideration, but like, uh, but you know, so it's if they want to, you know, like me and Dennis would be in story <laughs> meetings on screen and we would say, Oh, in this line, or what does this mean? Or uh, this doesn't make sense. Or could this happen instead or whatever? And like, if they like your idea, maybe they'll put it in, but it's not like, uh, you know. Yeah. Whoever like showed you, show, uh, it's going to be their call, you know? Yeah. It's fun. Like we were saying, it's a creative vacation. You know, it, it's basically they'll have a series of scripts and your agents will tell you, Hey, this show, they're looking for directors. And sometimes you'll hear those like, a couple different available episodes. You know, go, oh, we want to do that episode. That, that'd be great if you could do that. And you kind of vie for the episode you want. And then with Scream, we just got got handed in season two that that episode, and we we loved it. I mean, we thought it was one of the best episodes of, of the show, and we were thrilled to have that episode. You know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you're doing their script. You're not involved in the writing at all. Things change on set the way they always do. An actor wants to say something a certain way, or you have a better idea for how to say something, and you discuss it with the showrunner or the lead producer, and they sign off on it or not. You know. Uh, and then when it's over, uh, the DGA, I think, Kevin, what is it? Two, you get two cuts. You sit down with the editor. Yeah, two cuts. Weeks, yeah. Mm. And they leave you alone. It's kind of great. And you, you sit down with the editor and it's just, you, it's just all of you working on it together. And then when it's done, then the studio or the network comes in and they do their own cut. And you kind of mm. meet in the middle. Like you, you, you see a lot of the things that you did and then you see some newer things that they bring on simply because they know their own show better than you do, you know? And that's it. So you're you're not done with it, Silver. You actually get to sit down and fashion the whole thing with the editor. And so it, it's cool. It's it's cool the things that you kind of learn when you do TV and you know how they kind of structure everything out is kind of is interesting. Um, so for a little bit of context, I'm just wrapping up my first feature film. Uh, it's premiering um, at the Dances with Films Film Festival in September in Los Angeles. Um, it's not South by Southwest, but it's pretty great. Um, um, we're well aware of Dances. That's awesome. It's a good festival. Nice. Yeah. Um, so the question is like, you know, what would your, be, your advice be for someone like me who's got a film that's just about to come out or had just come out and they're trying to like get their steps to get their next film made? Like, what are some of the things that like that person should be doing to like, you know, keep their career going or like use the feature to like get their next project? Uh, hmm. I would say, I mean, there's, some, there's, that's, there's a lot of answers to that question. I, I would say it depends yeah. what type of films you're trying to do, you know? Uh, uh, genre, sci-fi thriller, sci-fi horror. Yeah. I mean, first, see what happens. With us, if Starry Eyes come out and, and nobody cared, you know, again, we would not have stopped. We would have kept going. Uh, because we got signed and repped, there's that, for us, there was that key moment where we're sitting down with, you know, the agents and they're saying, so what do you guys want to do? What do you want to do in this industry, you know? And you're so happy to be sitting there that you sort of just say yes to everything, you know? But I think in <laughs> hindsight, though, it, it, it's, it's better to kind of come in and know exactly what you want to do and try to stick to that. It's good to be open-minded, but it's also good to, to uh, be focused, you know? And sometimes you can get overwhelmed by, by the, the amount of opportunities you have. And really sometimes those can be a trap and you get stuck in development on things, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I think they called uh, 
uh, paralysis through analysis where you'll spend like Kevin and I spent like years just working on films that never ended up happening, you know? And I think in hindsight, that was good. And we got paid for those. And, and like Kevin was saying, it helped make people realize that we, we knew what we were doing as far as crafting a movie. Uh, but there, there were a lot of nights where Kevin and I just said, hey, we should have just gone and done another small movie. You know, that's again, ironically, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do right now. So depending on what I, what I sort of opportunities you get out of that film festival, uh, don't rush for that, 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 that make-believe golden ticket, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You have other things that you can yeah. do to keep busy, just keep your head down and keep working, you know? Yeah, I mean, me and Dennis made a lot, you know, made a lot of movies, uh, whether they be short to that first uh, super DIY feature that we were talking about before that, like, that were all done, like, kind of, like, before the, uh, the advancement in sort of, like, digital technology reached what it's at right now, you know, where people could just kind of go make their own films sort of easier. And uh, so by the time that we actually kind of got to make a film that got us some attention, we're a lot uh, older than, you know, a lot of the young people kind of coming out of film school now wanting to make films are. And, uh, and you know, if you look at how like, you know, even Quentin Tarantino talks about how he's only doing one more film because filmmakers usually get worse as they get older because, you know, <laughs> you lose the sort of stamina. Like, you know, I was saying it's long days, it's hard work or you, you know. And uh, so that's the thing, like me and Dennis, we look and we go like, we didn't get to start making films until like we were a lot older than some other people. And, uh, and we're like, how many years or how many more movies do we get to make in our career? And then you look at it and you go like, and that's what Dennis was talking about. Like we spent a lot of those years, like working on gigs or getting jobs for hire, you know, which are good because like I said, it kept, uh, kept, uh, you know, the lights on in our apartments and everything. And you need to, you know, you need to make a living. So that's good that we got paid those things. But at the same time we do go like, did we waste a few of the precious years because how many years and how many more films do we get to make, you know, like, so, you know, maybe we should have been focusing on some more of our own uh, films during that time, but it's tough because would we have been able to focus on those films if we had to go, I don't know, if I had to go get a job at in and out or something, you know, and then like, uh, <laughs> you know, so like, then I wouldn't have the time sort of, you know, so like, uh, it's tough. It's, it's a balance, you know, again, like just how before I was saying, trying to find a balance between being able to support yourself doing the stuff that you love, you know, it's kind of like, looking at it by how much can you sort of get away with, you know, like, you know, how much can, you know, yes, you do have want to have a career and you do want to get paid, but you also do want to make sure that you're like, you know, fulfilling yourself, you know? So, yeah. and it's a balance. It's, it's a constant balance, you know? Well, with that, I'm going to segue us into our last questions. We call these the final five. Um, so yeah. what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Shorter feature. However you want to, whatever, whatever's the better story, really. Uh, the first short film I made was with my buddies, whom Kevin knows, friends of ours from like back in our uh, Long Island, New York days and, and uh, living on a, in the suburbs on a cul-de-sac. It was me and some neighbors. And we, we basically made like Steven Seagal fight scene spinoffs. <laughs> like VCR, you know, a recorder, Panasonic camera where we were basically just like pretending that our arms were getting broken and we were flipping each other around the living room and punching each other and acting like Steven Seagal out of all people it was pretty stupid. <laughs> but, but that was really the beginning of the, of the filmmaking bug, you know, as dumb as it was, was just kind of doing fake choreographed fight scenes. So that's my answer. 
That's amazing. I made one of those, by the way. So I, I can relate. Steven Seagal yeah. specifically too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I'll, I mean, I did things on uh, video camera as well. In fact, I was just back home in New York visiting family and we were watching old home movies and like uh, my dad had one of those big VHS recorders. And I, I would always like, I don't know, I gravitated towards it. I'll see that even at family parties, I would be the one to take it, want to film, but I won't consider any of those really a first film, even when I would try and do something more fun with my friends. Cause I never, none of them were sort of complete. They might've just been like, I'm going to go mess around and shoot a thing. So I'll consider like sort of my first student film, uh, the final project of film school. I, I did a film workshop program, at New York film Academy. And we, you know, you did like four films over that two months. And the first couple I'll consider more like exercises because they were like just little things you were supposed to be building towards your final project, which was like a 10 minute short film with two soundtracks and stuff where like some of your others were just kind of like little extra silent exercises you did. So I'll consider that my first film. And, uh, and, and, I haven't watched it in a long time. So you go, you said, well, how do I feel about it now? I don't know how I feel necessarily about it technically. I'd have to go back and watch it again. I, I'm seeing it in my mind's eye right now. And I don't know if, how I see it in my mind's eye is how it would really play if I stuck it in. But, um, but how do I feel about it? I think it's like Dennis was saying with Starry Eyes. Like, I mean, I went to the, this film workshop program with two of my other friends. We were our group, you know, how you get paired into groups. So it was my friends were my group. And like, uh, and it just had this spirit of like, you know, making movies with your friends, having fun, being creative, doing any creative idea that comes to you because you weren't even worried. Even with me and Dennis' passion stuff now, we're still, you still think of it with a, okay, this is more of our weird movie, like Dennis was saying, but you still kind of think of it with like a little bit of like, what's going to make it marketable or mainstream appeal or, you know, that's always sort of in the back of your head a little bit and stuff. And just kind of look at the film school and it's just you and your friends going out and you could just do any idea that you wanted in fact you could try and do them you wanted to do the more out there ideas because you're like oh wait till the when they show that on the final uh, day where they show it to your classmates and you know like so yeah i missed that spirit and i was uh, and i and i look back at on it with uh, fond memories you know what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received well i just spoke but if he's not ready yet, i'll say uh it wasn't advice given to me personally to a person but the one thing that i when you said talking to people and giving advice to young people, the thing that I always go back and cite is, and I, and I never thought of it as being the best advice, but for some reason, whenever I talk to people, I always cite it. So I go, maybe it was the best advice, but on like, uh, on the commentary for the cabin fever disc, I remember Eli Roth talking about how the reason why Eli Roth is a professional filmmaker is because he just kept going because yeah. people go to film school and they get out of film school and they go like, do I get to make movies now? Like they want to just get out of film school and make movies, but, but making movies is hard. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's tough to get movies made. And like, as we were saying, like, even like we went for 20 years doing DIY stuff before we ever got paid on something before we ever made our first dollar that somebody gave us to go do something in the film industry creatively anyway we, we pa'd before but that was the first time that you know like and that took like 20 years of diy stuff like you have to no one's going to just hire you you got to like prove yourself and what eli roth said was that like everybody gets out because they there's a romanticism to making films everybody goes oh my god i would love to make films and you know it's this this dream job that people have and then they get out of film school 
and nobody gives them, nobody just hands them, hey, go make this film. And then like, you know, going out and continuing to make their own films that, you know, outside of the school system where the cameras are provided for you and hey, go shoot a movie this weekend. They don't do it. They don't have to go ahead and do it. And like Eli Roth said that he watched as all of his classmates start to just give it up and go get a real job because they need to support themselves. And the person that sticks around and just keeps going is the person that ends up sort of working in the industry, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And that's what happened with us. We went 20 years, you know, 20 years of DIY stuff before we ever got paid on anything. Yeah, it, it's good advice. And at the same time, I, I don't know if I would recommend it. It's like, it's like I agree with Kevin and I did it. But at the same time, though, if someone said, gee, like, that's what I'm going to do. I might not say, like, yeah, go do that. Spend 20 years not getting paid and doing your own thing. And then maybe it'll happen. You know, like, like I'm not saying I'd urge someone not to go down that path. But I, I don't think I would be super rah-rah about, like, even telling my own son, that, like, do what dad does, you know, like, like yeah. Um, deep down, I'm hoping he wants to be an accountant or like a realtor. <laughs> but more of a nine to five than this, you know, for real. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't but, know if well, you- yeah. But I don't mean to make it sound like a negative. I mean, like the thing that Dennis was saying before I think about it's not the train. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> no, like, but like it was like Dennis was saying about the train leaving the station before. It's about like, you know, you don't, don't get out of school and think that somebody could just hand you a movie. And then if, you know, and then a lot of other people that don't want to go out and kind of do their own thing, they end up taking sort of other jobs. So it's sort of that train is in motion thing that Dennis was talking about. Just keep doing it because you love it and because you like it, you know, just keep going out and shooting things and writing scripts because it's what you love to do. And then eventually, you know, like maybe something happens, you know, with it, or you, you know, like keep making films, you make a film, it might, it, you know, like that other good piece of advice is write your first script. Then, you know, what you do next, you stick in the drawer and write your next script, you know, just keep going, you know? Yeah. yeah. And don't do it for the money. (laughs) Um, If you have a goal, what is your goal as a storyteller? Kind of like what Kevin was saying, it really is finding that sweet spot of uh, getting to do the types of films that we want to do on our terms as much as we possibly can, you know, Uh, but at a level to where we could do them correctly to where we're not having to go back to like the past, you know, previous 20 years of doing it DIY, you know? And so it's hard. I, people think that's actually, it's kind of easy to be an Ari Aster, you know, and it's not, it's very difficult to get to that place. But I mean, we, we, would, we would love to be able to be in that position. So that's definitely a goal. Yeah. And add oh, Kevin you want it for me too? Oh, sure. no, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, no, no, my goals, you know, like as a storyteller is just, yeah, again, is to just be able to, like we were saying before about when we do sort of our own stuff or when we, with starry eyes, people responded to it and still sort of like still resonates with some people because I think we put a lot of ourselves in there and a lot of our, it was honest. And yeah, and it's just, yeah, finding a, a sweet spot where we could, uh, you know, make a living uh, telling the things that we care about and that are personal to us, you know. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourselves? Uh, it would be probably, uh, don't play the development studio game, you know, uh, give yourself a time limit, you know, and, uh, if you get to a point where you're not close to making your next film, just push everything off the table and just focus on getting that train going. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, oh God, which one? I mean, I'd probably tell, go back and tell myself a whole lot. 
<laughs> probably correct a whole lot of things. I mean, you know, I mean, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's tough. I mean, I'm one of those people that believes that things happen and, you know, almost like the butterfly effect, that kind of things happen as a chain reaction to something else. And if I went back and changed something, you know, maybe I'd go like, hey, you know what? Do something sooner and take it more serious. But then like me and Dennis, we, you know, we both brought up Tarantino in this because we grew, we, we started making films. We're going to film school right around that time where Tarantino was like emerging and everyone wanted to be sort of Tarantinos. And like, there's a lot of people that made like sort of like, you know, one movie that was in that kind of Tarantino vein and then they never made any movies ever again. And I'm like, you know, if I told myself some advice to treat this more serious in the, when I was younger and make more strides to make films, maybe me and Dennis would have made a, gotten a film made earlier in our career instead of it taking that, you know, 20 years of super DIY stuff that I was saying. But then like, you know, who knows, maybe we would have made one film then and then like, you know, we never got to make another one ever again because the industry changed or whatever. Uh, or, you know, like, I don't know. I think that uh, while I look back, there are things that I regret in a vacuum where I go, oh man, we wasted our time there. Oh, why did we do that? I mean, like everything that we've done or where we are now is something that happened because of a chain reaction with everything that happened before, you know? So if I changed something in the past, maybe I could have, uh, maybe we could have made a, a movie earlier or kickstarted our careers earlier, but maybe that career would have ended after a movie or something. So, you know, I just got to look at it as, you know, we are where we are because of the chain events that led us there. And I'm happy with where, what we're doing now. So, you know. Final question. Is making movies hard? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. That like, is lightning round. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, like, you know, it's on your, on, on your best film, you're hoping to get at least 65% of what you want in there and, and consider yourself lucky if you do, you know, uh, you know, but there are, there's always going to be tough days and there's going to be tons of compromises, but really for Kevin and I, we live for those moments and they happen. There was a handful of them on Pet Cemetery, where you're looking at the monitor or you're standing next to the camera and you're looking at the set. And not only does something happen on set that is ex exactly what you thought it could be, but it's better, you know? And you're going like, oh my God, this is pure cinema. Like what's happening right here? You know, like, holy crap, like it just came together. You know, everything, everything yeah. came together. And it's just a feeling that never gets old. And no matter what art you do, you know? is when you just yeah. it's kind of really getting nailed and those are the moments that we 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 live and die for you know uh that's our oxygen and so when those moments happen it just reminds you that it's like despite no matter how hard this is and how long it takes and how lucky you are for able to get a film going you know uh when you get those small moments on or even with editing when you see something come together or you see an audience respond to something i remember when with starry eyes like it, it played at certain festivals and like people were into it you know and then certain festivals like it was kind of lukewarm and then we showed it at beyond fest in la and it was a packed house it was like the best screening it's ever had at like the egyptian wow. on hollywood boulevard you know and like everything came together and the film worked perfectly people responded to it they were screaming and stuff and like i could have died right there and i would have been happy you know <laughs> so the struggle is worth it for those moments but yeah it's definitely a struggle yeah, I mean, um, it's, yeah, making movies is definitely hard. And it's funny, coming off the last question where if you could go back and give yourself some advice or something. I mean, 
I think one thing is that like maybe uh, just fight harder to get what you want or, you know, like, cause you just think of the things, you know, I don't know, arguments that you lose or times that you move on because everyone's like, well, you know, you're, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're getting behind schedule and you're real worried about the schedule and the money that's on the line and stuff. So you move on. And then, but then, you know, you're the one that's got to forever, like, look at your movie and go like, oh man, I know there was a better take of this or this shot could have been better and all that. And like, you know, and, you know, I mean, obviously me and Dennis aren't at any level where we could pull these things off, but you sit there and you're like, oh yeah, I don't think, uh, Francis Ford Coppola worried about the schedule when he was making Apocalypse. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, but like, you know, you're like, oh, wow, they were this, they were like a year uh, over schedule and behind on budget or whatever. And I'm not saying to do that. Me and Dennis are very, uh, you know, responsible guys with, you know, watching the clock and doing all that. But, you know, like, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like I was saying with some of those other things, our names are the ones that are on on it as director, we're the ones that are held accountable for anything in the movie. And then I look at it and there's certain things where I go, I'm being held accountable for that, but I I didn't like that idea. I should have fought hard, harder for what I thought was the good idea there, but we were overridden. I mean, that's, or I know there was a better take of this, but you know, I felt the ticking clock and I was like, okay, let's move on. And you know, nobody knows about the ticking clock at the end of the day when they're watching your movie, they're just seeing the movie, you know? So like, you know, so coming off of the is making movies hard. Yes, those are all elements of what makes movies hard. And you move on sometimes and you leave something the way it is. And you don't even you didn't even get it the way you wanted to because all these elements are very hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just get it on screen. <laughs> That's all people care about. Um, I know so, that we're running late, but just want to thank you for being on the show. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And then where should people go to find out more about you? Like, uh, do you have Twitter? Do you have Instagram? Where, where are you for people to find your movies and follow your careers? Uh, I mean, we have all that stuff, but we really, we really don't, you know, we're pretty focused on writing right now. So it's not like we have some online brand. I would say when something comes out or something's coming out from us, you'll definitely hear about it. And then you'll probably see us more on Twitter. But, uh, you know, that's the other piece of advice we would give is, Stay off social media. <laughs> Just yeah, I mean, if, if, yeah, you're like, where can you find out more about you? You know, if you went to my Instagram, all you're going to find out more about me is what craft beer I was drinking this week or something. It's not, <laughs> it's not really all, not really all that exciting. What you're going to find out? There. Yeah, well, that's so funny. But my cats ate the lunch. <laughs> yeah. As a non-social media person or a failing social media person, I feel a little bit better about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Liz, what do you remember from our conversation with Kevin and Dennis? I remember two things. One is um, I am a menstruating vegetarian who, when I have low iron, I get really cranky. And I remember (laughs) the entire show, I was like, let's keep it going, guys. Like, I remember my attitude was very short with them. So I remember that. So I want to apologize if anyone can tell that. Um, And the second thing I remember is this, like, very interesting trajectory they have where they essentially wanted to be a part of the party of studio filmmaking got into the room and now kind of want to leave the party to go back to the thrill and the the energy of truly independent filmmaking and i love hearing that because that's where a lot of us are so i remember that yeah that was really interesting um i remember like 
you know, asking them specific questions about like their careers and when they became full time filmmakers and like them being very, very reluctant to like admit that, you know, but like clearly they are like they kept on referencing their writing jobs and, and it was almost like they were referencing them, them like they were corporate jobs, but they were actually they're they're writing narrative movies right. like. That's the work they're doing, but they don't consider it like the thing they want to do because the thing they want to do is only direct their own scripts. And so like to them, it's like, oh, they're still not doing the thing that they want to do. But it's like, guys, it's like you are there. (laughs) You have made it to the top No one wants to admit that. Like everyone we talk to. But I also (laughs) want to shout out Zoe Eisenberg, who suggested um, Dennis and Kevin to be on the show. And she's amazing. And hopefully we can shout her out as many times as possible because I just think she's like the coolest and she also suggested some comments and questions for our interview that I didn't tell you about um but I asked them but yes it's like um I keep on going back to the Amber Seeley moment we interviewed Amber Seeley and we were like can you not tell that you have you're in the middle of like massive momentum in your career and she really didn't see it that way at all um but maybe these maybe it's an opportunity for them to see themselves through our eyes yeah. And I also remember they said, don't quit your day job, which is like probably pretty good advice. Because <laughs> that's what Jeff, my producer, told me to do, too. He's like, you know, your first feature is not going to change your life at all. Uh, hold on to your jobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Jeff. I love it. <laughs> really encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Liz, I believe you have a get shorty for us. Why I do. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. <laughs> this week on Get Shorty, we have a short film entitled Gwen uh, from new listener Luke Zwanziger. Or Zeiger. He'll tell us. He'll tell us how to say his name. Here's Luke to talk about his film. Uh, my name is Luke Zwanziger, and I am a director, editor, screenwriter. Uh, I should just say filmmaker uh, and improviser. Uh, living in Portland, Oregon. And I want to tell you about our improvised film, uh, Gwen, that we filmed in April of 2021. Why a short film instead of any other medium? Interestingly, this project lives as an episodic series that uh, the team Filbert released on their improv page, their Facebook page. And then we repackaged it and built it out as a short film. We took the three parts Um, and put them together as a short film with very minimal changes. Uh, And we honestly weren't sure if it would work, so we didn't go for a feature uh, out the gate. We wanted to just start trying it and see what happened. Um, So why this story? Well, it's improvised. Um, So on some levels, you'd have to ask the actors, but uh, Kristen Shear, my wonderful co-director, definitely pushed a lot of heart into this uh, this project um, and gave like very broad parameters of like, well, we had to know the location where we were shooting the day before um, and then just kind of said, sisters. And th- th- they went with it. And then she said, an ex. And they went with it and she said, um, a-, a local uh, professor. And they went with it. And so uh, why this story? You know, it it was pushing some of the 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 work that the improv comedians do that this team has done. They've acted together uh, for four years. I'm part of the team. Uh, so there's a lot of chemistry and a lot of just trust and vulnerability. And I think that vulnerability really comes across on screen. 
Um, how did we come up with the funds? Well, this uh, essentially was no money out of pocket. I am always an advocate of talking about uh, how much people brought to bear. So there's no money out of pocket, but I've been collecting gear uh, for over a decade. I brought mics, lights, I brought all of that to bear. I was the only technical crew member. I had my co-director, Kristen Shear, who was focused on the actor's performance. Um, I was also contributing to the story and actor's performance, but I was running the rest, sound, camera, lights, all at once um, to maintain COVID safety on set. Before making the short, what did you think would happen to your career because of it? Um, I didn't really know. I, I just, I hoped it would reignite the narrative cinema spark. I'd been wanting to make narrative cinema for a long while, um, but was working a theater job that was taking, you know, 80 plus hours a week. I was like, man, I don't have much new stuff to add to my reel. So I added new stuff to my reel. So that was very exciting. And I got to get some really beautiful images out of this. Um, Man, it was so great to get out there and make some film again. Uh, what did end up happening? Well, I got new footage for my reel. I cut it into my reel and um, I've uh, booked uh, a directing gig for a low, lo-fi indie horror um, project called John, John Sunshine's Lost Rock and Roll Tapes. And so I'm going to be the director of this, um, this TV pilot essentially. Uh, in 2022. Uh, would you do anything different story-wise now that the short is done and released? Uh, story-wise, this was a point of like, I want, I hoped there would be a few more jokes in it. Um, and my co-director, uh, Kristen was like, let the real moments breathe. We'll let, we'll find the comedy. And that's very much our philosophy is like, create real characters, you'll find the comedy later. And I expected this to be a little funnier than it was, um, but I think it came across with some real heart. It is showing at the Eastern Oregon Film Festival, uh, so we're debuting there, so that's super exciting in October. And then we were, we're waiting to hear back from a handful of other festivals we sent off to. Um, yeah, so if you want to follow me, I'm Luke Zwan, L-U-K-E-Z-W-A-N on Twitter. Instagram, uh, on the internet, uh, I have my own website, and Filbert Improv Comedy, follow them. It's an amazing troupe of comedians. They're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Come see us in Portland um, when shows start up again, whenever that may be. Uh, thank you so much. Making movies is hard, but so enjoyable. Thanks. Ulrich, what did you think about Gwen? Uh, okay. I thought it was mumblecore to the max. Like, there's some movies that are, like, mumblecore-ish or mumblecore tendencies, but this is, like, a mumblecore movie. So if you like mumblecore movies, you're gonna love this one. Um, I felt, uh, I was pretty surprised, uh, that it was unscripted, because it felt surprisingly scripted for being unscripted. Like, it felt like some of the monologues and the things were, were more like they were just longer little sections and it just kind of felt like they were they didn't feel like off the cuff as much as i thought they were going to which i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing you know because like it did feel like it was like you know there was definitely a through line through each of the three stories um but but yeah i i don't know it was that was 
I thought that was surprising to me. Like, I kind of felt it was going to be more like bantery back and forth. And it was more like there was Gwen had a lot of, you know, these long little stories that she's told, um, which was which was cool. Uh, I thought it was too long. Uh, it was 16 minutes. I think it could have been more like maybe 12 minutes or 10 minutes. And I think it would have been just as effective. Um, you know, it didn't have any of the problems that the last week's film had where with the opening credits or like ending credits, it was like it used up every minute of its screen time. Like I was at like minute 1550 or something and it was like the movie just ended. So I was like, okay, great job there, Luke. You did it. You nailed it. Perfect. But, um, but yeah, I just thought it was a little long and I felt myself getting a little sleepy, especially in the middle, um, story. Um, but I did really like these push-ins they did on Gwen, which I have to assume since it was unscripted that it must've been in post. Like they must've shot in 4k or, or even 6K, oh. and then, like, you know, did these digital zooms to get into Gwen, especially because they felt so smooth. Like, it felt incredibly smooth. Like, you know, for for a zoom like that, like, I don't know, unless he had somebody doing the zoom for him on, on a remote, um, I think that has to be digital. But I like those. I thought those were nice little moments where we just kind of focused, zeroed in on her, and then came back to the, to the two people. So I thought those were cool. Um, but, yeah, what did you think, Liz? Um... I love mumblecore, but this did not hit the spot for me. And I think because <laughs> um, I I thought it could use some editing. I didn't. I agree. I didn't. I didn't think it was very efficient in the way it communicated story. I mean, I heard Gwen talk about how she was in that job for ten years, maybe <laughs> three times, and that's just like the first three times I'm thinking off the top of my head. Right? I think it maybe whatever. It's three times. A lot of times. It felt like we were watching an inside joke that, like, I didn't get the context for. Like, I didn't understand why the boyfriend had such fun but silly hair or the ex-boyfriend had such oh silly hair. Oh, my God. The hair. <laughs> wow. There, the beginning monologue by Gwen, I thought, was, like, a Woody Allen direct address to camera. But I'm actually not sure whether it was or was not because it felt like she was totally jumping out of the scene to talk to the audience instead of to her friend that she was sharing a coffee with. Yeah. So I think like for me, the tone was all over the place. Um, I wish the camera was more mobile. I wish it was be able, like if you're going to improvise a feature, like let me be a person in the room listening to different conversations and let me let the camera capture that magic. And it felt actually more stagnant than I was hoping it would be, especially with the like, introduction that it was a completely improvised short i just thought there'd be more life mm. to it um yeah so i think while interesting um and actually my favorite part was the guy at the dog part i thought he gave the best performance oh, yeah. he was the most interesting um but i ca i just find myself asking why should i care which is not a great kind thing to say so i'm sorry luke i think there's potential here but I, I just think the film needs more life to it. It felt it felt very stagnant. Yeah. There was like no journey of the character, like no change, you know, across the three stories, you know, or nothing learned or, or you know, even if exposed. not that like the her uh the main character's energy was all like I don't even need her to learn something, but I'd like to see her happy or sad or, you know, like protective or mm -hmm. hiding something like yeah i never got to know her yeah it was like three slices of this person's life 
basically telling the same kind of story to three different people that she encountered. Yeah. So it didn't really feel like there was a lot of uh, nuance, you know, or, or anything that we really learned that much about the character through through that, you know. Um, I also think it was interesting that they, like, made such a big deal about how it was unscripted. Like, I don't yeah. know why we have to tell everybody that. <laughs> like, why is it so important? Is it because, like, to me, the thing's like, oh, well... It makes me think that like maybe they were embarrassed about by the story and the the dialogue, so they have to make sure that you know they didn't write it, or I don't know. But I mean, what what would be the purpose of making that a part of like the title of the movie it, and in the credits? It's an achievement, but it would be an achievement if you were like, oh, that was unscripted, you know? Like it would be an achievement if you felt like the quality rose above. Well, I know I don't know what to say because I don't think improvised means bad or disorganized, but it does. If right. if the quality rises above that, then maybe then then the preconceived notions of what improvisation is, then it's like a nice reveal. But I completely agree. You don't even need that. It just seems like a short about a woman who's going through something and and could use a little bit more of a surgical eye in terms of its storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the the boyfriend character with the hair and like the 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 you know the vest. You know, it's just like he was such a art directed thing. You know, but maybe that's just who that person is. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I really feel comfortable making fun of the hair because the hair is right. Like, I was like feeling just... bad about, but it's distracting. And then I'm like, what it's is it about this character crazy. that I don't know about that I could come out in that scene a little bit more? It's like such an aggressive haircut. It's like. I mean, it's definitely like a whole statement thing, but maybe that's that guy's deal, and that's like you know what he wants to represent himself. As. There's there's definitely actors out there who have very distinctive looks that like that's the thing that they're pushing, yeah. you know. And people, you know, like that guy who's in um, you know that that show Crashing played like the the guy you've watched Crashing. Yeah, is this the bun guy? I'm trying to think. Yeah, the bun guy <laughs> with the hair. Yeah. Like, he's basically got that same look and everything that he's in. He's also in this really funny show, um, Wrecked, that was on TBS. Oh, yeah. uh, and he plays, like, the same kind of character almost as he played in Crashing. And it's like, that's that guy's deal. And it works for him, and it's great, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, anyways. So, Luke, uh, hopefully this was helpful. Um, you know, I mean, there's definitely some good things in it, in yeah. the short, for sure. But it's interesting that, like, I'm not a Mumblecore fan, and I wasn't like drawn into it and you are a mobile core fan and you weren't drawn in but i guess one last question like so as a what are you looking for in in that kind of movie that this one didn't have like what what is missing there's like a you know? messiness with a hidden structure to Mumblecore, uh, where you're like oh i'm just watching the slice of life and then you're like oh there was a master plan all along you know like there's something <laughs> really magical <laughs> magical about how those kind of improvised films come to life and mm -hmm. I just felt like this felt like more like an exercise. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My favorite genre is like when the mumblecore people like go and make a movie that actually has a plot. That's my favorite. <laughs> so it's like they bring their mumblecore style yeah. into like an actually scripted story. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like this is giving me a story and I get to enjoy the way they like to make movies. Perfect. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I think it's uh, I think I've got mail, Liz. You've got it. Breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So, along with uh, his Get Shorty submission, Luke sent us a very nice letter with a question. And I felt like, you know, 
why not? Let's just double up and make this a Luke episode. So um, this is what Luke had to say. Firstly, thank you for this amazing podcast. I'm telling all my film friends about it right now. Amazing. Uh, I've been listening daily since I found it last week. Wow. And I was gearing up for a short horror film shoot. Definitely inspiring and supportive hearing filmmakers talk about their journeys, the internal debates on the worth of short films versus features. Your insights in the show will prove invaluable to me as I am attached to director short and a sizzle next year as I'm working with a local producer. Hopefully we are able to capitalize and turn one of them into a larger project. Then he has like a little break question. So this is the question part. Um, how much do you think that an indie filmmaker needs to pick a lane in their skill set? I'm a writer, director, DP, editor. I also run sound, I've gaffed, acted, produced, and beyond. I don't want to sell myself short, but I also know that the way that people perceive me will help me get more or less work. I really enjoy directing and DPing, but feel forced to pick a lane sometimes. I recently worked with a DP on a short, and honestly, I am glad I handed duties off for this one because we were juggling a lot from creature prosthetics, limited, limited crew, and a night shoot. The extra pair of hands, eyes was helpful. I know you have worn a lot of hats in the industry. How do you navigate how you identify yourself and what to let go of? What do you think, Liz? I mean, the only way I can answer this is for myself because for Luke, I don't want to be the reason he doesn't get work in the future. Um, <laughs> but... I think directing has always been the most important thing for me. I write to direct. I produce to direct. I do everything so that I can get to direct. So for me, it's very clear that I should brand myself as a director. If you have millions of things you want to do, I think a lot of that helps you when you bootstraps, bootstrap projects. Like if you really want to tell a certain story, then you could shoot it, you can edit it, you could direct it. Like those skills inform, help you get projects off the ground. And if I were Luke, I probably would promote the skill that would make me the most amount of money and then use the other skills for all the projects that I wanted to do independently. Like that's how I would look at it because it's gonna, you're gonna be muddled brand if you say I do these 40 things. Because I'm not going to trust that you do those 40 things really, really well. I'm not. And I hire a crew. That's what I do. But if I hire you for something you really are great at, and then I find out, oh, you also DP and you also do sound, um, then I would be using you for a project that I need to minimize crew for. So for me, it's marketing your most profitable skill and then letting the other message seep through. What do you think? Interesting. Um, yeah, it's tough. I feel like it also is sort of market dependent. Like if you're in New York or Los Angeles, like I think you, they kind of want you to pick one thing because there's just so many people doing stuff. And it's like yeah. you don't want to be the multi hyphenate um, amongst like a bunch of people like, you know, trying to get freelance jobs, like especially if you're like trying to crew up and get work like you definitely want to brand yourself as the one thing that you're trying to go after um, in the smaller markets like my market in San Francisco. Uh, you kind of have to be in multi-hyphenate sometimes because there isn't that much work to go around. So, like, the more things you do, the kind of better uh, chance you have at, like, you know, you know, putting food, up, food on the table. Um, but, like, some people still don't like to hear <laughs> about all the things you do. So you kind of try to, like, you know, represent yourself for the job that you're going after. Yeah. So, like, you know, if you're, you know, for freelancers, you don't really do resumes very often. But if you are making a resume, like, you make like a very specific resume for the job that you're going for or if you're like you know trying to get a job you know 
whatever as a DP, obviously just send them the stuff that you shot, you know, don't send them stuff that you've edited, vice versa. So it's really just like, you know, each job and each situation is separate. Um, but yeah, for a long time, like, you know, when I was a freelancer, like that's kind of how I was able to survive. Cause like I shoot, edit, and I produce, and I would just do a combination of those things to, um, you know, to keep, keep the lights on, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, I wouldn't be like, on a, on a job where I was like producing with a crew of 40 people, like I'm not talking about like, you know, the little corporate video that I'm shooting and editing on the side, like that's like a separate thing, you know? And so for those people, I just talk about all the, the producing jobs I've done. And then when I'm, you know, working on the smaller stuff, it's like, I, I talk about the smaller things, but then if one of my clients that I'm like d doing direct work with, cause I'll like shoot, edit and produce a video directly for somebody where it's just like, they just hire me as a production company basically. Then I can talk about the bigger stuff I've done if they want to level up, you know? So I'm like, oh, well, you know, I do this low budget stuff, but then I can also like point to them like, oh, I also produced this Doritos commercial thing. And like, you know, if you wanted right. to do something on a bigger scale, we, I could, I, we could do that too. It just would be different, it's you know? It's an extension um, of the conversation. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, um, I, but I can count like I can I'm thinking of specific scenarios where I've hired someone to do a job and then it comes out that they're also a director or want to direct. And then in very inappropriate circumstances, they'll give me suggestions for directing. <laughs> oh, and like no. that's what I'm mainly thinking about is like, hey, keep it separate while you're on set and then be a resource like in the in-between spaces. Well, that's also just an inexperienced person who doesn't know that they shouldn't be sharing that information with a director on a movie, you know, um, especially if it's not asked for. <laughs> um, yeah. And which happens all the time, you know, and like you'll, you'll see a PA who starts to like, you know, step up and try to like, you know, give suggestions in the creative, you know, and then like it'll have to be a producer or a director who just shuts them down and be like, no, this is not the time <laughs> for your voice. Why don't you go get the coffee? In the something? 11th hour, giving a suggestion is not the timing. Right. Like, I'm down. I'm down to reject. Uh, reject the hierarchy but just there's appropriate time for yeah yeah there's definitely a, a way to do it you know and I, I feel like it's also the director who opens the door for that or not yeah. you know and I think a lot of days these these days uh, directors are interested in, in hearing from the crew and like getting like multiple perspectives on things but you know obviously there's a time and a place yeah. of course um but yeah I mean the other thing I was going to say is creatively like my my creative work and my my corporate work were very separate like you know, I wanted to do more corporate work as a director, but like I wouldn't really be talking about myself as a director in that world as much because like my directing, like I direct sci-fi movies, I direct horror movies, like that's the thing I do, you know? And so it was sort of like, you know, a, a division there. And so I would definitely talk to people about my filmmaking, but you know, it wasn't like, I'm not just going to brand myself as a writer, director, you know, producer, shooter, editor, whatever all like that's not all on my business card like my business card is like very specific you know it's like i have a business card for you know filmmaking and then i have a biz i used to have, have a business, a business card, card just for yeah somewhere i haven't um, made a business card for myself as a filmmaker for like five years maybe what does it say on mine it says producer director editor wow. um is what it ah. says and i got i got these made for free as a trade from a, a corporate job i did um, so these are like the super, this is like, you know, if in American Psycho, like, like I would like throw this down at the table Great and they'd be like, show. oh, <laughs> I see the different types of cardstock you have here. Oh, the indent. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice. The texture. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think I liked that because, you know, it was, 
you know, pretty simple producer, director, editor, like that's pretty con concise, you know, um, although that is three things, but I mean, that's three things that make sense together. You but know? you're like, right about market. Of... You're completely right about market. Like I'm thinking yeah. narrative feature worlds when I answer that question and you're thinking right. about that, but you're also thinking about day job video production, which is a really right. great delineation to make. I think if you're thinking about the narrative, like like filmmaking stuff, it's like I think writer director is like the the, the jam, yeah. and then and like we've we've heard that so much from people. It's like if you can write and you're a director, it's like you're so much more valuable to representation because they can like you know get you different types of jobs. If you just direct only, it feels like you're a little bit. I don't know. It, it seems like it can sometimes be tough, but then again, Jim McGowan doesn't, right? And she's she's doing fine. I saw her so. face in my head as soon as you said that. I was like, Jen's got something yeah. to say to you. Right, right, yeah. I know, but just like, you know, talking to it was the the Pierce brothers and, um, you know, Dennis and Kevin. And, then and the Nels a, brothers with their writing. And the Nels brothers. All these yeah, brothers. Exactly. All these, like, male these, duos. <laughs> Where are the sisters? There are the, they're out there. We got to get the sisters on the show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but anyways, I hope that's helpful. Um, <laughs> hope you didn't you know. like uh, tell your friends not to listen to us anymore because we gave you constructive criticism on your short film. Yeah, seriously. Well, I'm sure. I mean, he's if he's heard the show, he gets it, especially the last few episodes. Yeah. So like, you know, yeah. he knows what to expect. I don't think he's going in this with his eyes closed. Um, yes, we have a brand new iTunes review and it's five stars. And the subject line is awesomeness, which is a great word, question mark. Um, awesome podcast, great resource and source of inspiration and reality checks for independent filmmakers, says Buckingham from the United States. Thanks, Buckingham. Thank you for, yes. for that lovely compliment. Um, and with that, I'll tee up Ulrich to end the show. <laughs> so... If you want to be like Luke uh, Zahn Zeiger, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Also, I think Luke or somebody else was like, I don't know where to submit my Get Shorty. Where's the Get Shorty submissions? Guess what? It's also podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Um, or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, just like Buckingham did. Thanks again, Buckingham. Um, you can also go to our YouTube page, now at 245 subscribers, five away from 250. Holy crap. Um, and leave a comment or a question, and which we haven't been, you know, talking about lately because we did that for so long. We're going to take a break from reading every single thing that's said on uh, YouTube unless something is really great to say. Um, and lastly, you can support the show on Patreon, and we have a lot of wonderful uh, Patre Patreon patrons. Um, some have de decreased their dollar amount recently. One emailed me I about totally the decrease. Um, they're funding oh, really? for their film, and so they needed to decrease their monthly uh, comment, which is fair. No, I mean, I think that's totally fine. And I mean, I, I mean I'm still grateful for every cent we get into the show. Um, but yeah, thanks for hanging in there, people. Even if you have to decrease, we still we love it. And, uh, and I don't know if I read the where you can do that. It's at www.patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks in advance to anyone new who joins. And then... Finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast. And yeah, we uh, hope to hear from you soon. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Kevin Kelsch and Dennis Widmeyer for coming on the show. Shout out again to Zoe Eisenberg for recommending them. Thank you, Zoe. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, uh, where you're going to. I mean, we have some news in the coming weeks, so there'll be an update to the website in terms of some support of the show. So check it out before and after our announcement. Thanks to editor Cameron for doing the editing. 
And thanks to everyone for listening. Talk to all y'all next week. Um, but Liz, uh, I think there's something that you could talk about here if, there, if you want. <laughs> Stop teeing me up. <laughs> Sorry. Can't help it. Um, yeah, we do. See, Cameron, this is this is your blooper. <laughs> Use this as your blooper, Cameron, for the love of God. You can just, like, take out the part where I said something, and then, like, Liz will just start talking about the next thing. Um, Perfect. Bloop.